This sermon, Gratitude, was preached by Pastor Tom Wilkins on March 26, 2023 at Sovereign Grace Church, Tucson. To Romans chapter 8. If you're a guest this morning, I have the joy of welcoming you. Also, I'm Tom. I hope I get to meet you. I have the joy of being one of the pastors here. Tim, thank you for leading us in that super awkward moment just a few minutes ago as we moved out to the edge. But I believe it will serve you all, and I believe it will serve our church for the future. This one's not so awkward. We stand to bring honor to God's word. So let's together hear the Lord's word. I'll be reading chapter 8 of Romans verses 31 through the end of the chapter. Read with me. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is it at the right hand who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution? or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You may be seated. Father, I pray for your church. That we would see Jesus high and lifted up again. Because of what he has done for us. Lord, those may be familiar words in our prayers, but my prayer this morning is for anyone present that they would now hear those words in a new way, move and save those who are lost. 
Father, I pray for your church that's gathered, and I pray that every one of us would hear your word, be changed by your word, and be moved to worship you. Father, amaze us when we hear again that you sent your son to die for us. And Holy Spirit, make it possible that we see and hear again the good news of Christ. Jesus, we can't thank you enough at the beginning. Thank you. And it's in your name. It's in your power. It's in your authority that we pray. Amen. If you're familiar with the bridge course that our church hosts throughout the year, in that course, that introduction to who Christ is, Jim Donahue in session two repeats an adapted version of this story. Once upon a time in a kingdom far away, there lived a great king. He was a kind king, a merciful king. The kingdom was known for its peace, harmony, and goodwill. One day, however, the chief servant of the merciful king came into his throne room with ill tidings. There's a thief in the realm of your kingdom, sire. The king was astonished. Find that thief, and when you do, bring him to me. He'll be punished with ten lashes. Those in the room were astonished as well. It had been so long since a crime had been committed, they could hardly imagine who would have done such a thing. A week went by, and the servant returned again and made his way into the throne room. Sire, I have bad news. Again, the thief has not been found. He continues to rob your people. The king raised his voice and said, Find him, and when you do, he'll now receive 25 lashes. The people began to murmur among themselves, Who could withstand such a punishment? Who could possibly be committing such a crime? As time went on, the servant once again came back into the throne room. Yet with another bad report. Your majesty, the thief still, still has not been found. We have searched in vain for him. Your people have been robbed over and over. The king is enraged. Find the wretched thief. And when you do, his punishment will now be 50 lashes. The people gasped and were filled with dread. They were certain that not even the king himself could withstand the punishment. And if he could, if he could not, then certainly no one else could. Who is doing this? Soon after, 
the servant again approached the king in the throne room. His face was pale and his voice timid and hollow. Your Highness, a thief has been found. Well, bring him to me this instant, cried the king. The crowd that had poured into the throne room slowly parted, revealing the thief who now stood trembling in the middle of the room. In utter shock and dismay, it was the king's aged mother. There she stood, trembling and crying. Her small and frail body was shaking with fear and shame. She was perhaps the very last soul that anyone would have suspected of such a crime. And there stood the king, shocked, deeply wounded. The crowd began to murmur again among themselves, what will the merciful king do? Will he set aside the law and display his love and mercy for forgiving his mother for her crimes? Or will he display his sovereignty and justice by giving her exactly what she deserves? Will he choose mercy? Will he choose justice for his mother? The king raised his hand and quieted the crowd. Bring the whipping post. The crowd was dumbfounded. Would the king truly have his own mother receive such a punishment? Even the king could scarcely survive such a flogging. The frail woman would not last even a few strokes. The woman is tied to the post. Her garment was rent, exposing her back to the whipmaster. Her ribs could be counted for her frailty. Administer the lashes, the king said. And not a sound could be heard as a whip was drawn. But just before the whip was about to unleash his first stroke, the king cried, wait. The crowd sighed in utter relief. The feeling didn't last for long. The king himself stood from his throne. He slowly moved, to the, moved through the crowd from his head, removed the crown from his head, laying it upon the regal seat. As he began to walk down the stairs toward his mother, he laid aside his royal robe and finely woven tunic. Coming to his mother, he wrapped his enormous body around her completely enveloping her, shielding her from the whip. He cried out, now administer the lashes. Here's a question for us. Do you think the king's precious mother was grateful? I have the joy this morning, the privilege really, of preaching one of our shaping values in sovereign grace. 
And it is certainly a shaping value of this precious local church and sovereign grace. This church is known for her gratitude. You, you are a thankful people. It's evident to me, the longer that we're here, the more we know how thankful you are. But your gratitude is fixed on the Lord, and that's evident as well. You're thankful, but you're thankful to him. I would submit that it's already done its work in many of you and is doing its work in many of you. Today we're going to consider this. The cross of Jesus creates gospel-grounded gratitude. The cross of Jesus creates gospel-grounded gratitude. Now, you can leave that up, Alex, just for a minute. When we use that phrase, the cross of Jesus, we often in our church, if you're new to us, you'll hear us refer to the cross. We're grateful for the cross. We use this phrase, the cross, or the cross of Jesus, this message of the cross as shorthand for Jesus, really, shorthand for him and what he has done on the cross for us, verse 32. It's also shorthand for not only what he has done on the cross, it includes his resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation in all power and rule over heaven and earth, the cross of Christ, the cross of Jesus. This kind of gratitude that shapes us is a kind of gratitude that finds its source and its reason in the cross. Amen. Let's look at our text together. Let's consider the structure of what I've read. Verses 31 through 35, we have a series of questions and answers. You can look at your Bible. Verses 31 through 35, we have a series of questions and answers. Again and again and again, questions are asked. Again and again and again, the answers are provided. In verses 37 through 39, we have clear and emphatic statement after statement then made. We have questions and answers and then emphatic statements that are made in the second half of the text. And it's discovered here in these two adjoined sections of the text that the Word of God has the power to cause your soul, my soul, to burst forth in endless joy and thankfulness to God when we consider it, when we take it in, when we meditate on it. We're going to focus intentionally on verse 32. I'm going to preach two points from that text. The cross of Jesus is the proof of God's undeserved favor. That's point one. The cross of Jesus is the proof of God's undeserved favor. The second point we'll look at is the cross of Jesus is the very means of God's grace gift of all things. The cross is proof of God's favor. The cross is Jesus' means, God's means of his gracious gift 
of all things. Point number one, the cross of Jesus is the proof of God's undeserved favor. Now let's look at verse 31. Opening question, what then shall we say to these things? First question, answer, God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us is the answer. And verse 31 in that question is, what shall we say to these things? What are these things it's referring to? That comes from the text above and before. Verse 18 in particular, Paul writes to the Romans, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, these things are referring to that which Paul calls in verse 18, the sufferings of this present time. And in that sense, we're finding out that these sufferings are against us in that sense. So we're asked, Paul asks this question, what shall we say to these things? What do we say to these sufferings? And the answer is another question, statement, God is for us, who can be against us? He's addressing these sufferings. What shall we say to these things? You and I, write this down, highlight it in your Bible. God is for us. Now, that's an easy answer, it sounds like. I think it's easy because the scriptures, in this case, are easy. They're simple to understand. You have made grow up in a Christian church, and all you're hearing already is super familiar to you. You've been in a Christian family. Your mom's been a believer all her life. Your dad's been a believer all his life. It seems all you've ever heard are these things. Of course, God is for us. That's an assumption that we make. But you have to remember the context of Romans 8 is in the context of a letter Paul writes that begins in chapter 1 with our dilemma. If you would turn to chapter 1 with me. What do we say to these things? God is for us. Well, now let's look at Romans 1. Let's look at 18, verses 18 through 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. Listen, listen. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him. They did not honor him as God. 
or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. I didn't know thanksgiving was that drastic. Our dilemma, every man, every woman, every teenager, every toddler's dilemma is we will not acknowledge God. We will not give him thanks. It may be bad enough that you don't acknowledge the people around you or ever give thanks for anything. Scripture reveals, oh, there is something much worse at work in the heart of man. Romans declares an amazing truth. God has revealed enough of himself that every man and woman is held accountable. No one has an excuse. I think it's right to say this. Narcissistic entitlement is not new. You and I, depending on what political affiliation you belong to, you're going to hear a lot about entitlement. There is a generation of people that are being raised right now who believe themselves to be highly entitled. That is not a political concern. That is a divine, cosmic concern that began in the Garden of Eden. I will not acknowledge you, Lord, and I will not thank you. It is only cosmic rejection and rebellion against God to stand back, to walk away, and refuse to acknowledge Him and thank Him. Yet in the good news, God in His sovereign grace alone has set His affection on ungrateful. I remember hearing the word as a kid, you ingrate. God has set his affection on his enemies. We would not acknowledge him. We would not give him thanks. And yet in his sovereign grace alone, he has set his affection on us. Now go back to chapter 8, verse 32. Verse 31, he's for us. What shall we say to these things? I'm for you is the answer, and that should shock us. Now we understand our dilemma, but our dilemma helps us see the contrast that God is for us when he should not be against, I mean, he should not be for us. He should be against us. The very next words after what shall we say to these things should be, God is against you and everything and everyone around you are going to have their way with you. And that's not what we hear in the text. We hear an amazing shift in this text. What shall we say to these things? God is for us. Who can be against us? It is that real sense that God steps in and covers us and shields us from the coming lash of the whip. 
He's for us. And instead of crushing blow after crushing blow in sorrow and abject grief, the cross of Jesus rescues us by his sovereign grace. How is that even possible? How is it possible that God, the Holy One, the Holy One over all creation, standing in the face of undeserving humanity, shaking their fists at him, well, in that sense, acknowledging him, but not acknowledging him as their God, demanding that they be God and they will never give him thanks. How is it possible that we would receive divine mercy and grace? Verse 32 is the answer. Verse 32 is the proof of God's undeserved favor, the cross of Jesus. Hear it in the words again in Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Verse 32 is the epicenter of all that surrounds the text in Romans in this section. The cross is the very center of the text. The cross is the way to all the other parts in the text. How is it possible? Verse 32, what happened before? All pointing to verse 32. What's coming after verse 32? All the things were grounded in hope that point back to verse 32. The cross is the lifeblood. It is the wellspring, if we can say, of the proclamation of verse 32. He, that's found in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son. Isaiah 53. He was crushed for our iniquities. Verse 32, but he gave him up for us. I am for you. No one can now be against you. The proof cross of my son. The question, what shall we say to these things? The resounding answer, the cross. You and I, we were already tied to the whipping post. It wasn't coming. Scripture says that we were abiding and the wrath of God. We were already tied there. And that post was mine, and that punishment was mine. But Jesus, God's Son, stepped in and took our punishment and died our death. There's amazing truth about the way verse 32 is worded. He who did not spare his own son. I use these words just now. 
that God's own son stepped in and took our punishment and he died our death. But the scene is additionally more profound. The father takes his son and pulls him, pulls him into the path of the whip. And by the way, the whip that's being implied in the text is in those words, gave him up for us. Study those words, meaning the Lord brings his son in and offers him as the atoning sacrifice and punishment for us. The scene is Jesus stepping in and taking our place. The scene all the more is the father taking his son and placing him in our place. Now, are you more grateful? I am. This is the nature of the cross. The message of the good news that we repeat over and over and over and over in sovereign grace. We're going to keep hammering this nail. We're going to keep singing this song. Jesus was given up for us. Are we not now grateful? Now, return to your text. The sufferings of this present time up in verse 18. We read right after that text that Paul preaches the cross. So, sufferings of this present time. Verse 18, the apostle Paul preaches the cross. Verse 28, all things. Remember, we asked, well, what are these things? Verse 28, we've heard it. It's on a placard in our home somewhere. It's going to get painted on one of our walls somewhere. It's going to be on the bumper sticker of our car somewhere. All these things work together for good for those who, through the cross, that's the answer in verse 28. How is it possible that he works all things together for our good? It is through the cross. We now have also in verse 30 what's been referred to as the golden chain of salvation. For those who have been predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. The unbroken golden chain. It is an unbreakable chain. And how is it possible that it's unbreakable? The cross is the answer. Verse 32 is the answer. You and I are able again to take in how wondrous the cross of Jesus is. Like drawing the message of, of the cross in like a breath and exhaling in gratitude for the cross. We draw it in when we breathe in the cross. We breathe in the good news that he took my place at the whipping post. He took my place on the cross. He took my place in God, receiving God's wrath and I breathe out, God, thank you for saving me and you did this by sending your son for me. The cross is the proof of God's undeserved favor for us. But not only is it the proof of God's undeserved favor. Point two, the 
cross of Jesus is the means of God's gracious gift of all things. The cross of Jesus is the means. It is how what comes after this is possible. The cross is the means of God's gracious gift of all things. So verse 32 A is he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Now, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's consider these gracious gifts of all things. While still holding up his son as the way, as the proof, as the guarantee, he now promises gracious gifts of all things. I think it's safe to say we could have stopped at the first half of 32 and have been grateful enough today. We could have done this. The cross is that glorious. But it goes on. It's shocking what goes on after what he says about the cross. In the cross, by way of the cross, by means of the cross, he now graciously gives us all things. And these gracious gifts of all things are now given as the very things that we need and will need that are now detailed in the verses that follow, verses 33 through 39. Now, I want to be careful with this. It is all good things. There is no question. Now, look, when you and I have read this text, how gracious he would give us all things, and we can imagine all of the good things that we could get. That one's easy for us. Remember our dilemma in the first place? I'm not willing to thank him for any of these things. For breath and for life. For homes. For food. Oh, that is a significantly reduced and insufficient list, isn't it? Let your mind wander off in what that list would be. What are those good things? That God has done. But in particular in this text, in remembering the context of this text, he graciously gives us gifts of all things. And then he begins to address one after another what those gifts are. You know, when Paul, when you're reading your Bible, and you read Paul's literature, Paul loves to periodically, when he's in the middle of saying something, begin to list one thing after another. He'll do that negatively speaking. It's, it's God's will that you not be sexually immoral, that you not be given over to anger, and then the list continues, and then the list ends finally. But we know from the nature of what the text is preaching, Paul has not communicated a comprehensive list. It's not all the things in the list. This is, I think, it's safe to say, this is one of Paul's longest lists of things. And it too is still not comprehensive. By itemizing, 
But I think it's safe to say this from the onset before we look at them. It doesn't matter what we need in good things from God to face these things. Every one of these categories is going to provide God's answer and hope for us. Paul goes at length to prove to you and I God has given us gracious gifts of all things. So that when you and I wonder, well, does it include this? We go to the list and we could say, yes, it's there. It's in that category. Now let's look at these things. While he's holding up his son who has been given for us, he promises these things. He moves from the greater of what he's given. He has given his son. In verse 32, he gave up his son and he gives us good things. From the greater, his son, to the lesser but still important good things. These things to you and I. And by the way, remembering these are things undeserved. They're given to save us, to bless us, to satisfy and to encourage us, but more specifically, to preserve us over and above and through and finally, in the end, victorious over all things victorious over all things stated in this section. Let's go real quick to one that is always, no, that's an overstatement. I don't want to do that. I'm doing a lot of always, so just let me back out of that for a minute. How many times have I heard a boxer or some athlete say, verse 37, in all things, I'm more than a conqueror in Christ who loved me. And then we turn right around and we watch him get flattened on the mat. What happened, bro? I thought you were a conqueror in all things. Through Christ, that big cross that's on your belt. That's my cynical attitude when I watch some sports. Um, Or when they've been victorious. We're like, yes, all things, including that. We have so misunderstood what this text is saying. That has watered down the promise. We'll get to that one, but you'll understand it when we get there. I set you up. Moving from the greater to the lesser, let's survey the list. There is, if I counted right in our English transition, about 19. We're going to look at every one of them. Ready? Let's go. Number one, in and beginning in verse 33, who or what brings a charge against God's elect? There's a lot packed into that question. Can't preach on the doctrine of election, but I can say this emphatically. The list is referring to God's children. If you have refused to believe in Christ, if you are disregarding the good news of Christ, These things are not held out for you as present. But right now in faith in Christ, they're yours if you will turn and repent and believe in Christ. Believe and they're yours. Who brings any charge against God's elect? And the answer essentially is God has already brought the charges Jesus shed blood on the cross 
has justified us. Hear those words. Who shall bring any charge against us? Verse 33. It is God who justifies. And by the way, these first two we're looking at are the only ones in the list that have an immediate response because of how quickly they're anchored in the gospel of Christ. How quickly they're anchored in God shedding the blood of his son as an atoning sacrifice for us. Who can bring any charge against you? God has already brought those charges by sending his son Jesus who bled and died on the cross for us and he justified us. So yes, any accusation that is brought your way that reveals your guilt before God, you can say, yes, that's true, but I'm justified. We can say in verse 1, to any person or anything that brings any charge against us, God has already poured out his wrath and justified that. Verse, or the second one that we're going to look at. Who is it that's going to condemn? Christ Jesus already has received our condemnation. Let's look together at it. Christ Jesus, excuse me, who is to condemn? Verse 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who's at the right hand of God. Jesus is our condemnation, and he died for that condemnation, and yet he is risen. And he is at the right hand of God, and he is interceding for us. This is an amazing, amazing truth for you and I. Our Savior is alive and well in heaven, making intercession before the Father for people who should have been condemned, but he himself had been condemned. And so you and I are no longer condemned. This is in the context of chapter 8. There is, in verse 1, no condemnation. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The cross of Christ has removed our condemnation is the answer. Now let's move through these at a faster pace, stopping periodically. There's enough there's enough right now to be grateful for, isn't there? There's enough already for us to have our gospel-grounded gratitude forged. God creates that in a believer. We turn and we believe in Christ. And now thanksgiving we did not have before emerges out of the believer's heart because God has created that thanksgiving. But yet in the believer's life, he begins to forge that thanksgiving in us. He takes what is newly created in the believer and then he shapes it into that wonderful, beautiful gratitude in him. Before we would not acknowledge him. Now we've been shaped and molded to glorify him and to magnify him before we never had a thought for what he had done for us would not give him thanks and now he has created in us and is now continuing to forge it in us and where is that applied well will tribulation separate you from the love of christ that love of christ that's been purchased by the blood of jesus at the cross shall any tribulation separate us? The answer to all of these, by the way, is no. Because of the cross. The answer to all of these should have been yes. It should have never been considered that we would experience the love of Christ. 
No. No tribulation. How about distress? A different word. A different word in distress. Tribulation, it seems magnificent. It seems big. It's all on us. No, not that. How about distress? Privately, weighed down, overcome, beat to the ground. Shall that separate? No. But is it real? Yes. This text does not say we will not face these things. In fact, it's already begun earlier in the text. In verses 18, the sufferings of this present time. That's this present time. Until the clouds peel back and the sovereign one of the universe comes in at the announcement of the voice of the archangel. Until that day, we still face the list, the joy. It will not separate us. It does not matter how bad the distress is. It does not matter how low you've been brought. It does not matter the things we begin to believe when we're so weighed down and overwhelmed. It will not separate us from his love. Shall persecution, you know that you believe in Christ, It's ridiculous what you believe. You're foolish for believing these things. I'm sick of hearing about these things. You talk about these things all the time. And so we feel the persecution. We experience a real persecution. That will not separate us from the love of Christ. I think if we study the matter of persecution biblically, it's as if God's affection on us is all the more galvanized in persecution. It's as if he says out loud to us all the more. It's like as if he could penetrate us all the more with his love and say, no, this will not separate you from my love. It does not matter what's being said about you. It does not matter what you're about to face. How about famine? This is real famine. This isn't famine when you forgot to buy your favorite ice cream and now it's 10 o'clock at night and you're trying to watch a recording of your favorite sports and your favorite ice cream is not in the fridge. That's not famine. This is a siege laid on your town, laid on your neighborhood. And they won't let you eat. Could be. Could be distress of the elements over your nation, over your area. No food getting in, no food being produced. This is real. Current day Americans do not know famine. This is not referring only famine of the soul, which it certainly includes. This is real hunger. This is real death waiting. The children with a bloated gut because they've not eaten for weeks and weeks and they've drank only sewage water that will not separate them from the love of Christ. Nakedness, no. Danger, no. Even the sword. It's a transition occurring in this one. Let's look there together. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And right at the end of verse 35, will the sword separate us from his love? You Christian, you will not worship Christ. You will worship this idol. You will bow down. You will turn away from Christ. Or you will die. Turn in that moment. In the middle of the fear and the distress and the worry, turn in that moment. And you will see eyes from heaven piercing the threat of even your life, looking you straight in the eye, saying, I love you. This is only going to be for a second. And all the more, you'll know. In a moment, you'll know. The sword will not separate you from my love. Don't turn your back on me. Not now. I've not turned my back on you. I gave my back for you. Don't turn away. I love you. This will not ever take it away. And so then we get to the next one. As we go through, as it's explained for, we are being killed all the day long. That's not a metaphor. We are regarded as sheep for slaughter. That is not a metaphor. Believers in Christ have been dying throughout the ages. They've experienced the sword over and over and over again. Somewhere on the planet, the blood of a believer has been spilled because of their faith in Christ. Christ's love for them still affixed while their blood is left on the planet. And so we get to know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. All these things. For I am sure now, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels. Death, right on the heels of death. Will death separate you? Separate you? No. Will even life, the promise of life, that long glorious, wonderful life. Can that separate you? No. The angels. Can angels separate us from the love of Christ if it were possible for angels to do that? By the way, this is clearly referring to dark angels. This is referring to the demonic. It's referring to the whisper at night saying, this stuff about Jesus is a lie. Turn to me. Look at what I'll give you. I'll give you the kingdom. I offered it to Jesus and he denied it. I'll give it to you. No, not even angels will separate you from the love of Christ. Can any king, any ruler separate you from the love of Christ? No. Can anything right now, in other words, in the present, can anything happen right now? No. Can anything to come? No. Nothing tomorrow will separate us. And then he goes on. Can any power Because you and I are like this. He just said, can anything? No. Can anything? No. Today? No. Tomorrow? No. But how about that power? That's really powerful. No, not that. How about any height? How about any depth? Anything in the sky come crashing down on you and I? No. Any depth? We're plummeted to the depths of the sea, to the bottom of the canyon. No. Can anything else in all creation separate a child of God from His love for us. The cross of Christ is the means by which you and I receive gracious gifts for all these things. 
anything that you and I face found in at least, can be found in at least one of these. Can they not? What has come your way that has caused you even for a while to believe that God does not love you? What is it? This long list is not a simple rebuke. This long list is what the Lord is saying to you, those of you right now who are doubting his love for you, that you know you're his child, but what you're facing right now is overwhelming, and you question whether or not he loves you. They're saying he does, even in this. Has your spouse failed you? He loves you. Has cancer got you? He loves you. Have you lost and lost and lost? He loves you. Nothing will separate you from the love of Christ because of the cross of Christ. Love of Christ is fixed on you because the blood that he shed remains on you. So, what is it that you need? Lord's answer. Remember, I have given my son for you. So what do you need? Saint, what do you need? What do you really need? What What's overwhelming you? What has come your way? I've given my son for you. This is both a joyful, heart-satisfying, fear-calming, foundation-laying, and gracious anchoring of our souls, and it is a gracious reminder that his affection and favor are fixed forever on his children. This truth of verse 32 preserves us. He did not spare his own son, preserves us. He gave Jesus his son up for us. It preserves us. The cross of Jesus creates within us that gospel-grounded gratitude. Where is that gratitude going to come from? It's going to come from this. It's going to come from the cross of Christ. I did not have this before Christ. I now have this in Christ. That gratitude, that thankfulness, it was not there before. Oh, I could thank the guy at the store for his help. I could thank my mom and dad for this or for that. Boy, whenever ever I thought of the Lord, there was no way I was going to give him thanks. That brought accountability. But now, but now, because he has given his son for me, something resides in me that is new. That is thankfulness. That is honoring gratitude. That is gospel-grounded gratitude. He is forging thankfulness to him into our hearts once and for all in a place where there was never any thankfulness. Now, let's close. The cross of Jesus is definitely the proof of God's favor that it is ours forever, and that his favor is undeserved. 
the cross of Jesus, it is the very means by which all of this was even possible in the first place. So let it have its way in you is also the claim and call of the text. This is not just recounting of it. It's because you and I forgot this. So let it come back into memory and let it move you again back to thankfulness. Let it move you back into gratefulness. He's at work doing this. He's at work forging this in us, but he's also at work calling us to this gratitude. Today, you may feel deep thankfulness again from what we've just looked at. That would be your heavenly father, the presence of the Holy Spirit revealing the majesty of Jesus through his word, reminding you of his great sacrifice at Calvary. But what about tomorrow? What are you and I going to do tomorrow? Where will our thankfulness and our gratitude be tomorrow? Will you and I remember tomorrow to honor and thank God? What will we do then? We'll do this. Go again to the cross. Go again to the gospel. Read it afresh. Go again to the epistles. Read them again. Go again and again to the word. And let the word remind you of the mercy of God revealed at the cross. And you'll find that which he's forged, he's forging again. May we, and Rick, you can come up. The band can come up. I don't mean only you. May we join the reformer Martin Luther who's been quoted saying this. I feel as if Jesus had died only yesterday. You and I have heard a lot over the years about don't trust your feelings. In this shaping virtue that we're hearing of this morning of gratitude, it's, word, it's deeply seated in objectivity, but it bursts forth in experience and feeling. If there was anyone that would not trust his feelings, it would be Luther. And Luther says, I feel as if Jesus had died only yesterday. You know, when you and I hear, he did not spare his own son. Does that not, at least right now, seem like it was yesterday? It seemed like it was just yesterday that he shed his blood for me. It seems like it was just yesterday that we hear the cries from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It seems like it was yesterday that he would turn to you and I and say, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Doesn't it feel like yesterday? If you would stand with me, let's pray together.